Hello. 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 And welcome to Mobilize. Mobilize is a podcast that puts a spotlight on and is a resource for people, people, friends, communities, communities activists, activists who've decided to stand up, resist, 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 fight back, mobilize. Each day, together, together, we shine a light on the we truth. Shine a light on the we truth. focus on the things that unite us. We pull each other up. We celebrate, we celebrate our, our shared humanity. humanity. Episode 25, We Are All Interconnected. It's May 22nd, 2020, and we are in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. Globally, we have reached nearly 5 million cases of COVID-19, and the leader in that number is the United States, with over 1.5 million cases and almost 100,000 deaths. Or more, because that's almost certainly a huge undercount. Today's podcast presents the voices of three medical care providers on the front lines of the pandemic in Maryland and New York talking about what they and their communities are going through and what they think it means for the country. Not all of it is easy to listen to, but I hope you'll give them your time. And as always, thanks for listening. My name is Stanley Liu. I'm a general cardiologist at the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. My name is Julia Gabriel. I work in a clinic in Langley Park, which is a suburb outside of DC, and I'm a family nurse practitioner. My name is Dr. Saq Ibrahim. Uh, and I'm an internal medicine doctor here in New York. I work in Queens and specifically Flushing. You know, I was the first physician seeing COVID patients at the hospital where I work. It felt like a really out-of-body experience because we didn't know what we were dealing with. I was figuring it out on the fly. I didn't know, you know, the level of safety precautions I needed to take. In all honesty, I had resigned myself when I started that there was a very high likelihood that at some point I was going to get sick and I just needed to accept that. At its worst, it really was nightmarish and it really did feel like a war zone. I was seeing over 30 patients a day and that wasn't because the hospital was putting me in an unsafe situation, but there was just too many of them and not enough of us, you know, and we had patients dying right and left. I, I stopped keeping count in terms of how many of my patients died when it got above 30. And I think in my worst day, I had five patients die. But that was just me alone. And the fact that the situation was changing minute to minute, where a patient would look fine, and then five minutes later, we're calling a rapid response on them, having to assess whether they need to be intubated. Patients weren't getting better. Constant conversations with loved ones. I have to thank the nursing staff, the PAs, and the NPs I worked with, because there's no way I could have done this all on my own. I would have completely broken down. We've never seen anything like this. It was a very terrifying reality. It's, it's crazy to think that in such a wealthy and first world country like the US, the things that we were experiencing are what you would normally associate with places that don't have resources. And my life basically shut down to all I was doing was waking up, going to the hospital, fitting in meals wherever I could, coming home, showering, and going to sleep. That was it. And it wasn't like it was just a day or two. It was actually over several weeks, and there's no way not for it to affect you over time. 
and and I'm glad that that period is over, but it's one of those things that you'll never forget. We are sort of in this steady state where we're not sure are we peaking, are we going up or down? Where it's hard to say. We started socially distancing reasonably early. There's been re- pretty decent compliance with it. And I think that's a huge, huge advantage. In fact, I think that's saving our asses right now. That said, everything has changed. We're mostly seeing people coming in either with COVID or concerned about exposure and wanting testing. And then also a lot of patients who are just coming in because their other primary care office is closed. I've always been the only provider there. And usually we would only have eight to 12 or 15 a day, but now we're getting at least 20 a day. Outpatient clinics now, uh, we don't want people coming in and getting sick in the waiting room. So we're doing everything telemedicine. And in the hospital, um, we have to prioritize the safety of our patients as well as our staff. As if one person gets infected, you're spreading it throughout the whole hospital. In fact, I'm currently under orders to take my temperature twice a day because there was a colleague who tested positive last week. In an ideal world, you would test everyone coming through the door. But the problem is we don't have enough tests to test everyone. So hospitals create intelligent but imperfect algorithms as to who gets tested. And the scary part is, you know, I work in a hospital and this is where availability to testing is the highest priority. So if I can't get tested, imagine what it's like for the general public. People need to understand why testing is so important. You can't manage a forest if you can't tell how many trees there are, you know, and that's the situation right now. Enough is considered subjective. So like when you talk about PPE, for example, everyone gets one N95 mask and that's if you're in the ICU or you do procedures and that's to use forever. And if that gets broken or dirty or contaminated or whatever, you can bring it in to switch it out. But they're keeping tabs on the numbers very closely. They have to. Some of our technicians who have to get right up next to a patient, they had masks, but not eye production. And when they went to these ICUs to do these procedures, the ICU said, no, these are for our people. And so these procedures were happening multiple times a day, every day. You can't wait for this. So I ended up just appealing on social media. And a friend put me in touch with a mechanical engineer in Maine prototyping some new face shields. And they shipped 20 face shields at no cost to me. They all had face shields in five days. It's both wonderful that we have people who are willing to help, willing to do the right thing. But the fact that I, as a cardiologist in the richest country in the world, had to beg for help to protect my own team. I don't know. I think it's like American individualism at its best and its worst. You see like great things people can do, but there's like an over-reliance on that. I'm not an expert in like the supply chain or the economics of it to say why or who point fingers, that kind of thing. It's just individuals, individual departments, individual hospitals, individual states. Uh, They are on their own and they have to do what they need to do. It's just that all of our normal suppliers just don't have anything in stock. My dad actually went on eBay and found me a box of N95s when things first started getting crazy. I share that with my coworker, and then I've just been kind of reusing my N95 and (laughs) spraying it with a very harsh solution. And then I rotate between three of them so that the virus eventually should die within a couple days on that surface. So... But yeah, I've seen posts of people like baking their mask in the oven and using UV light. So a lot of it is just trying to figure out what's the real science and just trying to protect yourself as much as you can. 
in terms of actually understanding like what's actually going on and what's working and what the rest of the world is doing, honestly, it's been the lay media and social media and medical organizations who have adapted and helped make information sharing a lot easier. In mid-March, for example, the American College of Cardiology launched a live webinar with the uh, Chinese Cardiology Association and listening to what they saw, what they did, what they tried, and the lessons that they had for us. It took the politics out of it, and they were basically like pleading us to learn from their experience. And I remember one of the cardiology leaders on our end were asking, there's a lot of skepticism about how serious this is. And like, there are even talks about this being a hoax, that kind of thing. And, you know, we have a big country, like it's not going to ravage through the whole country. Like, what would you guys say to that? And I remember watching like the doctors in China, they were just looking at their cameras and didn't know what to say. And then one of them just said, my friend died. Like, please take this seriously. Like, you can't over-prepare for this. This is as real as it gets, you know? And I think that was probably more powerful than any of the specific medical advice they had. Just seeing in their eyes how much they had been through, it was heartbreaking, you know? And then to see how not seriously we were taking the threat and just realizing, man, we have to sound the alarm. And some people got it, some people didn't. And then you had a federal government that, you know, at best did nothing. Um, and at worst spread a lot of misinformation. A lot of it we were having to figure out on the fly. There is very little that we fully understand. And there's a lot of aspects of this virus that we're going to need to research very heavily. And I think that this virus is actually going to change the field of immunology and virology pretty substantially. I had a patient who was admitted with COVID that had no known history of any kind of life-threatening arrhythmias that went into complete heart block which is basically when there's no link between the electrical circuit of the heart and how it's actually operating. And while we were trying to take care of him, on the other end of that hall, another patient had to be urgently intubated who was fairly young and without any other health issues. And if I had to pick which patients I would have thought would have crashed, that patient would not have been on my list. Then we've also been seeing patients develop blood clots that we wouldn't have expected and one of the earlier patients I had was this very healthy female that had no respiratory symptoms, no other issues, but she was in a very severe state of hemolytic anemia. Basically, the immune system starts attacking someone's own red blood cells. And so we had put her on high doses of steroids. We'd put her on autoimmune suppressing agents. And then we were doing plasmapheresis where we're basically filtering her blood. Um, and ultimately, we had to transfer her to Cornell to an academic medical center because her needs were so severe and, and her case was so complicated. I get patients who have tested positive who don't have symptoms. Sometimes they don't have fever or cough. A lot of people will come in with the neurological manifestations of lack of smell and headache and anxiety. It's definitely spreading in the community and it's partially like a lack of education and also a lack of ability to stay home and not get a paycheck. We serve mostly 90% immigrant, uninsured, Spanish-speaking patients. Um, almost all of the men work in construction, and a lot of the women are cleaners or working low-income jobs. We have so many government employees that are considered essential workers. It is difficult to treat low-income people because if they don't 
work, then they don't eat. So it just sets you up for a whole nother list of problems. So at first, a lot of people were coming in like wanting to go back to work and needing an exam saying they could go in. Like I had a patient who was working at McDonald's. She was positive and still working even though she had symptoms. I tell them to stay home. And then some letters that I write to employers, I'm I'm just very blunt. And I'm like, if you could give this person paid time off, um, that would really help the community. It's hard to hold someone responsible for these people, but really it's like a lack of government help and their jobs often don't even give them health insurance to begin with. So that's the difficult aspect of trying to contain the spread of a virus in a community where people don't have the ability to live if they can't be working. Yeah, the population that I serve is middle and lower income for the most part, heavily Hispanic and Asian with a sizable African-American population, the COVID patient population that we were seeing in the hospital was disproportionately Hispanic. And part of that was the Asian population in that community in Queens started to physical distance sooner than the general population because they had family in China and in Korea and other places. And so they were hearing about the virus sooner But I think uh, there's a very clear, you know, link between socioeconomic status, social determinants of health and this illness. We were seeing with a lot of these Hispanic families, they lived in multi-generational homes and they live several people to a house or to an apartment. And then a lot of them tend to work in factories or the gig economy. You know, some of the earliest patients that I saw, I had a taxi driver and three different Uber, Lyft drivers. And so they were having to put themselves in unsafe situations because they needed to feed their families. They couldn't isolate. We treat the Baltimore City population, which is an urban population, but we also get referrals from wider in the state. We're getting a lot of patients from other counties that are being overloaded with COVID-19 patients. That said, we are seeing an imbalance of who's getting infected, who's dying. Basically, African-American patients in multiple areas in the country are getting infected and dying way, way, way out of proportion to their relative population. And uh, I think the general public is now seeing what I have seen for the past 10 years. In the cardiology world, there has always been this disparity. African-American patients have always had higher risk of high blood pressure, stroke, diabetes, heart attacks. They get at earlier ages, they die of it at earlier ages. And there are a lot of things that go into that, you know, socioeconomic type stuff, education, access to good nutrition, good health care. These disparities have always been there, but COVID-19 is just putting it in the spotlight. When you see this many people dying, it's impossible to ignore. I think, you know, as a society, we're only as strong as like the weakest person in it. And that is so true in terms of this virus. Like you can quarantine all you want, but if you have poor people who have to survive, they are not going to be able to listen to those rules. So you have to take care of the weakest people first. That means support in terms of money and testing, information. It's the whole structure of our society, really, that is not set up for that. Obviously, I blame Trump. 
I feel like he doesn't take it seriously or the like funding cuts to all of these organizations that know how to like handle these situations. I felt like with Ebola, I was in the hospital at that time and I just feel like everyone was like notified about it and knew what was coming and then it never spread because that first like case was quarantined so well. I'm just like, why is the government not working for the people? I mean, I've heard that the government was blocking shipments of PPE to sell it to like vendors. Why are they bailing out banks and not bailing out poor people and small businesses? Why can't mortgage companies stop collecting payments during this time? There's just so many things that could be done that would actually help. So it just seems bizarre that they're not doing those things and claiming to help at the same time. Honestly, I'm very lucky. We have a governor who realizes that you can't reopen an economy unless you have adequate testing and managed to negotiate directly with South Korea. And a direct flight landed in Baltimore with 500,000 test kits, cost us $9 million as a state. Our first lady is a Korean American who apparently had direct ties with the Korean ambassador. And that's how we pulled it off. But the fact that we even had to do that, like Annapolis should not be negotiating with Seoul. And that also means that we just outbid Andrew Cuomo and all the other states who are trying to find the right test for their citizens, too. It's become a zero-sum game. I'm not going to lie, I'm grateful. He's going to save lives in Maryland, and he's going to make my job way, way easier. And our economy is going to be able to open up more safely. That doesn't help anyone else. I listened to the White House talk about how you know, we have enough testing, we have enough testing, and it's just flagrantly untrue. And if other states and the federal government could be honest about this situation, I think it would go a long way. I mean, the economy is hurting so much, you can't just keep going on like this forever. I get that. You know, I appreciate that. People are hurting. But what I think people also need to understand is that if you don't take care of this right the first time, there will be a second one. And then you're going to be faced with the politically unpopular choice of shutting down again. Or you're going to have a wave that could be even worse than the first. You just don't know. So that is what I wish there could be a unified, very sensible science-based and economics-based strategy. And more often than not, it's more about just ideology. I would ask the government to make sure that it is going out of its way to protect all essential workers. You know, although I may be on the front lines in a hospital, I'm not the only person that's being put at risk. You know, those that work in grocery stores and pharmacies, places that people need to go to, that they make sure that there is proper protective equipment for these people, that we're keeping them safe, that we're not putting people in economic situations where they feel compelled to have to work in unsafe situations. I would also ask the government to really listen to its public health officials, to not let our desire to get back to normalcy trump reason and logic and what the data is showing us. At least in New York, we've been able to flatten the curve. But if you take New York out of the US numbers, the curve is still going up in the rest of the country. We're seeing states open while they're still on the ascent of that curve. And that's really scary because even if your state has it under control at the time that they reopen, someone coming from somewhere else could create a cluster. Not to poke holes at what parts of the country are doing, but this whole concept of we're just going to start taking people's temperature, I don't know how that means anything, quite frankly, because we had plenty of patients that didn't show up with a fever. If we were hasty or presumptuous, we could end up with a massive resurgence and we could have even more devastating effects to the economy because of that. We've now revised the numbers of expected coronavirus deaths from saying that we would peak at 60,000 to now saying we're going to peak somewhere around 120 to 130,000. And I don't consider that a win. 
And we really need to recognize that if this was a basketball or football game, we're just entering like the second quarter. This virus is definitely not under our control. And anyone who says otherwise is spreading misinformation. And that's what I really want people to understand is at its worst, this virus is absolutely terrifying. It's not a hoax. It's not something that only affects elderly people and those that are very sick. And if you're healthy, you're spared. It is far more communicable than any other disease that we've seen. Trying to liken it to the flu is a completely flawed argument. You know, I've seen data out there that's like, oh, the flu kills 60,000 people a year. And and, oh, this thing has killed, what, 70,000 people. But that's 70,000 people in the span of a little over a month and a half after we had lockdown measures And had we not done anything, that number would have been exponentially higher. And what I saw bore that out. We're going to have to adapt our, our habits moving forward so that we can truly be safe and keep others around us safe until we have dramatic increases in testing, until we have a vaccine, and until we better understand immunity. People don't always care about the well-being of others My coworker's old boss that she worked for knew that this was going to happen and bought N95s and is selling them at higher prices. I don't know if we as a country are even capable of doing the things that would be necessary to contain an epidemic, because even as you see now, with all the information we have, there are people who think it's a conspiracy theory or are protesting about, you know, their freedoms So as Americans, we are not very great at looking out for like the collective good of everybody. I think people are making not great decisions, but I can't blame them because there's so much misinformation out there. And it's so hard to filter through what's real and what's not. So I don't know what we can do other than trying to relay the message in a way that people can trust. But I wish I could let people see what it's like to be an ICU patient and be completely cut off, not have any visitors. I don't think anyone should die under a bright fluorescent light with no loved ones around, but that's what's happening. When these people die, they die alone. I mean, I'm hearing ICU nurses telling stories about how they will just sit in with the patient, decked out in full PPE gear and just hold their hands until they die so they don't die alone because there's nothing they can do for them and social workers rushing to grab an iPad so that they can push it up against the window so that their families could say goodbye to them through the window. I mean, can you imagine? That's what's happening. I think if people could see that, maybe they would understand why it's so important to socially distance and just do everything possible to prevent the spread of this virus. I have a wife and two young children. And at the end of March, we made the decision for me to self-isolate until this is over. My wife, my now three-year-old son and almost six-month-old son, they basically moved out to live with a relative. And we've been apart since then. Actually, that's not true. This past Saturday, I drove out three hours to meet my wife um, at a highway rest stop. And we parked next to each other and had lunch in our cars while talking on the phone. Um, It was not easy. But... That was before I found out about this exposure that I may have had. And once that news got out, I think my lucky stars, we made that decision (laughs) because there was no other way I could completely eliminate the possibility of bringing this home to my family. You know, I have this routine now, like 
I have a set of shoes and streets that I wear. And before I go into the hospital, I go into my office, which is in a separate building, change into my scrubs and, you know, work shoes there. And I have masks, I have safety goggles, a hairnet, gloves, and then I go to work. And then before I leave, I go back to my office, change into the street so that nothing that was in the hospital, as best as I can control, comes into my house. And then, you know, as soon as I get home, wash my hands, shower, just to keep myself from contaminating the place. I'm in the house alone and I just saw two patients through my computer and I'll FaceTime with my family and read my kid a story, you know, before he goes to sleep. That's basically, this is the new normal for me. I missed my son's third birthday and um, I don't know when I'm going to see them again. Yeah. You know, I'd want people to, to really go out of their way to take care of themselves, but to also take care of each other, recognize that we are all interconnected and that being cavalier with our own habits will put other people at risk. It's not just whether you get sick yourself, but who else you infect and what will their response be. So if you don't do it for yourself, do it for the people around you. You know, wearing a mask when you're in public, proper hygiene, taking this seriously if you have symptoms, isolating yourself, and if you can get tested, get tested. And I recognize the pain that people are going through, especially those that need to work. And I'm hoping our corporations and our government will be there to help support these people, but also recognizing that this isn't over and we can't just go back to life like the way it was. And so we really need to, to think about how we are going to change and change for the better. The choice I made to socially distance myself from my family, it was a choice that I could afford. And many people can't. Like the people who are cleaning the rooms of the COVID-19 patients who've just died, they can't socially distance themselves. They can't telework. And they are just as risked and without them, like we don't have a chance. The people who clean our scrubs, they do the linens. The people who work in the cafeterias so that patients have food. The security guards, like these are people who, when push comes to shove, they're gonna be laid off, they're gonna be furloughed. And they don't have the luxury of the options that I've had. So I would ask that people please remember these people. Look out for your neighbors, help them. At the end of the day, if I don't get sick, I'm going to be okay. But there are a lot of people who are not. So please, I guess I would just say, look toward your neighbor, take care of your neighbors.